Um, so today we're going to continue on to, I don't know, Introduction to Biomechanical Analysis or Biomechanical Principles 3 or whatever you want to call it. Um, and we'll talk more about forces and more about vector addition and subtraction or resolution and decomposition and a couple other things. There's your course objectives. So we're talking about anthropometrics, free body diagrams, reference systems, force, center of gravity, center of mass, uh, and center of mass of specific body segments. And um, I apologize, this is not the order which we're going to go in today. I changed lecture around a bit, but this is, these are the topics that we will cover. Anthropometrics, or anthropometrics, um, is the study of origin, behavior, physical, social, and cultural development of humans. So it's a branch of anthropology, and that's what that is. Anthropometrics is essentially measuring the size and proportions of different parts of the human body. Um, so you can look at body composition, body dimensions, swelling, those types of things. So anthros in Greek is man, and metron is to measure, so you're measuring the man. You can also measure the woman. We don't discriminate, although those Greek people probably did. Um, so when do we care about measuring an individual? Well, clinically, it has lots of application. Um, so if you have an individual, I'm not going to fit into the same wheelchair that one of these shorter ladies is going to fit into, right? So we have to measure each other and measure our patients to see how they fit into things. And that goes for lots of different applications that are not clinical. So furniture design. There's very little furniture in the world designed for me. So I have to fit myself into the furniture um, as opposed to having the furniture fit me because I can't afford custom furniture. Um, so if you're uh, an airline pilot, you may be able to fit into one of those seats. Again, I don't like to fly in airlines because it's designed for someone who's, what, 5'8", not someone who's 6'5". Um, things that you guys can do clinically, designing workstations um, or controls. So you're going, sometimes you will simulate a work environment in the clinic and try and see how the individual may be seated all day if they sit at a desk or if they do repetitive activity or manual labor, you're going to facilitate that and see how you can modify that or modify their work duties to decrease their pain or decrease their symptoms or uh, modify it um, based on some restrictions they might have due to pain or surgical intervention or something along those lines. Designing tools, not um, super clinically related, but you will have adaptive equipment that you could help to design um, for your patients. Functional activities, back to sports and work, etc. So we talked about sort of designing workstation. It kind of goes along with that. Fitting a backpack. Um, I know you guys have lots of textbooks that are not light. And so if you carry them in your backpack and it appropriately fits, it's going to be um, provide less stress on you. Uh, mannequins, which we'll talk about. And then analytical problem solving, which is we're going to spend a fair bit of time today looking at problem solving, free body diagrams, looking at the role of um, force on joint angle and those types of things. So there's lots of different applications. Some are clinically related and some are not. An example of an anthropometric measure is your body mass index. Um, and you guys probably already know that it's your mass divided by your height squared. Um, and you're looking at kilograms and meters, so you're looking at the metric system. And there was a study not that long ago in the Journal of American Medical Association. And they said that if you are obese, which is a BMI over 30, or you're super skinny, like that lady there, or obese like that lady there, um, super skinny where you're less than 13 for men or less than for women, you're at a higher risk for mortality. So you're more likely to die if you fall into those extremes of the body mass index scale. 
Um, but all they're doing is taking an anthropometric measurement mass, so you're weighing yourself and height, and then they calculate a ratio based on that. Um, and they came up with this body mass index. And there's obviously some limitations to that. Um, but there's also statistical research that shows that you're at a higher risk for death if you are in those extremes of BMI. Um, and interesting, there's lots of research looking at ACL injuries in female athletes and in male athletes and surgical outcomes and things. Um, and there's been thousands and thousands and thousands of research papers about that. And the only predictor for ACL injury in all of those studies has been shown as body mass index. So if you're heavier, you're more likely to tear your ACL because you're putting more load through your knees. Um, so application for analytical purposes, so doing some sort of mathematical force analysis or kinematic analysis, and you're going to consider the body as an N-link mechanical system. An N-link system means you can look at as many body segments as you want. So N would just be any number that you sort of fill in. We're going to look at simple um, applications. So we're going to look at usually one segment, but you can apply that to the whole body. Um, and you're going to look in, or you can look at lengths, masses, the center of mass. <coughs> Excuse me. Moments of inertia, like we talked about last class. Um, and if you're looking at multi-segment systems, meaning your whole lower extremity as opposed to just your foot, um, so you have the thigh and the shank and the foot, um, you're assuming that the junctions or the joints of those body segments have rigid links, um, so everything fits together nice and um, even, and there's no stress or strain associated with loading because we're trying to make it as simple as possible with the appreciation that there is some sort of error associated with making that assumption. But the math behind it, not making that assumption is far more than my brain can comprehend. So within anthropometrics, obviously we talked about mannequins, so they can utilize mannequins to assess lots of different things. You've seen the lots of car commercials, you can see this mannequin has a baby. Um, but they look to see how forces are applied and how that might affect individuals that are in a car crash, um, for example. And these are the uh, examples of the first trash crash test dummies. Um, this is from 1968. So back in the day, this was pretty sophisticated. Now it's probably pretty garbage. Um, but they still get a lot of information, and they continue to evolve, and hopefully our cars and things are safer because of that. So when you're doing anthropometric measurement clinically, the measurement tools are quite simple because all you're doing is looking at masses or lengths or circumferences. Um, and so these are essentially your measurement devices for anthropometrics. You got a tape measure, you can look at circumferential measurements of different body segments or lengths of body segments. You can look at height um, and mass using that scale or weight because we're all on Earth. And then here, this is known as an anthropometer because it measures anthropometric measurements. And usually what you're looking at is a, um, a girth or a width measurement, so how wide is your foot, how wide is the knee joint line at your femur or your knee, something along those lines. Has anyone seen or used one of these before? Just wondering. So this comes into play, um, anthropometric, so when you're looking at body weight segments. So if this is the breakdown of your body, so we're going to say obviously this would be the weight of your head. So these red dashes indicate the marcation line between, between different body segments. 
foot, shank, thigh, hand, forearm, upper arm, trunk, head, so on and so forth. You can look at components or the masses of specific components. So the head, neck, and trunk, so this area here demarcated by sort of the V and then above that, not including the arms. If you took the masses of those, it's approximately 60% or 59% of your body weight. Um, the upper limb, each upper limb is about 5% of your body weight, 4.9% of your body weight. And the lower limb, um, each lower limb is about 15% of your body weight. How would that, or how could that information affect sort of a clinical, how could you put that in a clinical context? Okay, so if you're looking at resistance training, you can understand the proportion of your body weight relative to a specific segment. That makes sense. What else? Yeah. It can affect your center of mass. So. Okay, so if you're doing a transfer, you can look at how to proportion your body weight to facilitate movement of your center of mass to make your transfer easier. You guys doing transfers in basic skills? No, this guy's just advanced, I like that. Um, so that's good, yeah, you can utilize that. Um, you could also look at if you were to, um, to weigh these segments and you had a lot of swelling in a specific segment. So if you had a mastectomy, if you're a woman and you had breast cancer, you had lymphedema in your arm, you could weigh that body segment and see how it would compare to the other side and this would give you a normal sort of comparison average too. So there's lots of different applications. Or if someone had an amputation and you were looking at um, the weight of the prosthetic, whether you're trying to make it as light as possible to facilitate gait for them, or whether you want to equalize it compared to the other leg, you can utilize it there. So there's lots of additional um, clinical implications that can be found in very simple things, just looking at masses or lengths, etc. So looking at um, segmental masses as a percentage of your body weight, this is a table. I don't expect you guys to measure that um, or to remember this, but just appreciate that it exists. And what these are, these are a bunch of different research studies that looked at different individuals, so a very small number of individuals, two folks, three, one, eight, and so on. And what they did was they chopped them up and weighed stuff, is basically what happens. So, and the percentages that you see are the percent of their total body weight. So when you cut someone's head off, it weighs seven and a half, seven, eight point eight, 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 uh, and seven. So it weighs around seven or eight percent of your body weight is on your head. And so on and forth down the line, trunk, um, total arm, the upper arm, forearm, and hand, forearm, specifically hand. You can go down the list and see um, how they break it down. But it's just, this exists and this is used in um, biomechanical studies for giving motion analysis devices normal data to start with, and we'll talk about that in class next week. Um, <clears throat> just appreciate that it exists. And you can look, and if you want to measure specific parts of your body and compare it to this scale, or these scales, go ahead and do that. It won't be part of lab. You can also look at a segment length as a percentage of individual's total height. So, the average female is 161 centimeters tall. This is what it's saying, and so that is their whole, what they refer to in this study as stature. So this is the fifth percentile, so this is going to be shorter individuals, 
50th percentile, which is right in the middle, and then 95th percentile, which is obviously your taller individuals. Um, and so their stature, this is the height range of the 95th or 95th percentile um, of height for males and females. And from the floor to the ankle, you're looking at 6.3 centimeters relative to 161.5 centimeters for their total height. And then you can get that as a percentage if you want. Um, and this may have a play if you're looking at leg length discrepancies. So someone that has a leg length difference and you're trying to adjust with orthotics um, or custom shoes or something along those lines. And then there's males here on the, on the right side. And I am correct. I think these are the percentages calculated out here. So 6.3 of 61.5 is about 4%, which is probably correct. Um, if you also want to determine the location of the center of mass, and we're going to do some problem solving related to specific body segments, and we're going to be utilizing the center of mass for those, and that can be calculated as a certain percentage um, distance along the whole body segment. So, for example, here, if I'm looking at the center of mass of my shank, the center, or, yeah, the center of mass of my shank is going to be located more proximal than distal due to my muscle belly, my gastroc. Uh, muscle belly is being more proximally located than distally, it's more Achilles tendon, right? So my center of mass is going to be located more proximally. And if you were to measure according to this table here, which isn't a great picture, but it's 43% from the knee joint center to the distal aspect is where my center of mass would be for the shank. So it's not directly in the middle, it's closer to the more proximal segment because that's where the most of the mass lies. Um, in this table, 4-3 in your textbook, which gives you all the center of mass locations relative to the proximal or distal segment that we're referring to. That guy's got on some interesting bathing suit kind of thing. <laughs> I'm not really fashionable, I would admit, but I don't wear anything like that. So that probably is fashionable then? No. No, okay. If you're in Europe on the beach, it's definitely fashionable. Um, and not that attractive. So determining center of mass for the whole body, we talked about center of mass relative to specific body segments, uh, but you can utilize calculations to determine center of mass for the whole body. You can see the math behind it is a little bit detailed, and so we're not going to really get into that, but appreciate that you can physically calculate it um, based on looking at the center of the mass as a proportion of those masses relative to the individual's body weight. Um, and you can plot that, but we're not going to do that. Um, it might be said before, remember, the center of mass can be without or not within the human body anatomically, so it can be, as shown in this picture here, it's not located within the body, but that's the location of the center of mass. Um, also within anthropometrics, you can measure joint centers, or you can estimate joint centers, and that's used on palpation techniques, and then usually applying some sort of mathematical calculation to that. So if I wanted to look at the joint center for my glenohumeral joint, I can't palpate within my humeral head. Um, so what I do is it's the mid-region palpable bony mass of the head and the tuberosities of the humerus. So what I would do is I would palpate the tuberosities of the humerus and the middle distance between that is what I'm going to call my center, uh, my joint center, excuse me, for the glenohumeral joint. Just as an example. Um, at the knee, 
So it's going to be the midpoint between the line and the centers of the posterior convexities of the femoral condyles. So if I had an anthropometer and I measured the width of the femoral condyles, the midpoint between there is going to be my joint center. And what do we know about these joint centers that is not true based on the last couple of classes? The axis of rotation. Right. So the joint center is not always the axis of rotation because it depends on the range of motion that the joint is in, right? Remember, clear some of that pathophys junk out of your brain to so start thinking about biomechanics again. So we're talking about this is these are general estimates of the joint centers, and these are probably the joint centers in anatomical position, but appreciate once you move from that position, then the joint center is going to change because the instantaneous axis of rotation where the joint center would be is going to change. Any questions about anthropometrics? It's pretty straightforward. Just measure something, write it down. You can look at it in relation to um, percentage of that individual's height or mass or something along those lines, and you can calculate um, center masses and segments in the whole body. Force analysis. So we're going to move on to force analysis now. This is a, what we're going to talk about is a simplified method to determine the forces occurring in a joint or different joints of the body. And we're going to do it a very simplified method. This is a picture here um, of an individual that got motion analysis cameras going on there, and she's standing on force plates. We're not going to get into all of that, but has anyone seen that? Um, some of the exercise science folks across the street probably have more than they want to, some of you guys. Um, but you can measure forces in different directions depending on the type of force plate you have. So you can look at vertical, anterior, posterior, medial, lateral forces depending on the sophistication and the expense of your force plates. Um, but we're going to do a whole lot more simple force analysis than that in this class. And what we're going to do for our force analysis is we're going to use a free body diagram to facilitate us calculating um, forces and to do our force analysis. And the definition of a free body diagram is a pictorial representation describing the forces acting on an object. Now the object can be a specific body segment, it can be my hand in space when I'm going to throw a ball, or it can be my whole body as I'm doing some sort of activity. Um, again, we're going to keep things simple as possible, so we're going to look at one segment force analyses. And there's five steps in your creation of a free body diagram, and we're going to go through each of these relative to an example that we'll talk about in class. But the first one is isolate a body segment or object to be studied. Like I said, we're going to choose one body segment so it's as easy as possible. Um, second one is set up a coordinate reference system. Third step is draw an outline of the body and label the internal and external forces that are being associated with that body. Fourth step is show the contact forces, air resistance, fluid, manual resistance, friction, joint reaction forces, examples of that that are acting on the system. And then the last step is to provide equations which govern the motion. So we're going to go through each of these um, step by step to, to break it down for you. So here we have, who is that? Usain Bolt, right? Fastest man in the world until he gets caught dealing or using drugs and then he won't be anymore. Um, but he is ridiculously fast. And you can see he's got these things here that are unfamiliar to me, uh, muscles. Um, 
And I'm not sure when that race was, but he wears gold shoes because he gets gold all the time. Anyway, but we're going to say that we're looking at a force analysis determining the ground contact forces during push-off in one of his races, for example. And as I was looking at this picture, I was like, great, his foot isn't on the ground. Um, so ignore that component and pretend that he's pushing off at some point while he's running. And so the first thing we're going to do is going to isolate the body or the object that we're going to study. So, like I said, we're going to make it a whole lot simpler than doing a whole body. So, this is the segment to be studied, and we're ignoring the whole rest of his body and just specifically looking, looking at his foot. Everyone okay so far? Good. Then what we're going to do is we're going to set up a coordinate reference system. And this will help us in the calculation of forces that are acting at the joint. Um, and so what I've done here is I've set up a coordinate system of x and y direction. And you can set up the orientation of this axis system in any direction which you like. But when you go to do the math behind it, which we'll get into a little bit today and more next week, your life is going to be a whole lot easier if you line up one of your axes with the body segment that's going to be studied. So if we're looking at um, his lower leg, the y-axis approximates his lower leg. And then the x-axis is just going to be perpendicular to that. Now it doesn't matter which is x and y in, my, in this diagram because again this is arbitrary. Um, but if you line up one of your axes with the um, segment that you're going to be studying, it's going to make your life a whole lot easier. And within a mathematical calculation that we're going to do, the x and y are positive in the direction the arrow is facing. So here my y is positive as it's sort of going down, and x is positive going up and to the right relative to you guys. Now what I need to do is draw an outline of the body and label the internal and external forces that are acting there. So I'm just adding on to my existing diagram. Um, got my segment to be studied, got my coordinate system, and now I'm putting on my internal force, which is the force of the muscle, and that is going to be applied at the muscle insertion site, so it's going to be the Achilles tendon. And then it's going to be the force of gravity acting through that individual's foot. So I approximated, I put in the approximate center of mass of this individual's foot, and then the force of gravity is obviously going straight down toward the floor, down toward the center of the earth. So I've added the forces, the internal and external forces that are being applied in this specific segment. Then I need to show the contact forces which act on the system. So I've got the same thing that I had before. I've got my internal, my, uh, my internal force is 90, my contact forces. So I have a ground reaction force, equal and opposite to the force of my body weight, right? And then I have joint reaction force acting at the joint, so that's my FJ, not those cool Toyota trucks, um, but that's the joint reaction force. Um, that's going to be equal to um, the segment load going to the joint, as well as the muscle force and the elastic components of the muscle acting at the joint. Is everybody okay so far? And now what I need to do is provide equations which govern the motion that is occurring during this task that we're looking at in this free body diagram. So within the free body diagram, remember, we're looking at one time point. So we're assuming that forces are equal to zero, because it's going to be a static situation, and therefore your torques are going to be equal to zero. So 
the sum of all the forces acting on this system because the static situation is equal to zero. Therefore, the forces, the sum of forces in my x direction are equal to zero. Again, this is based on my coordinate system. So the sum of forces in the x direction are equal to zero, and the sum of forces in my y direction are equal to zero. And because, again, it's a static situation, the sum of my torques for the whole system are going to be equal to zero. So this is a free body diagram looking at a static analysis of an individual's foot during push-off. Any questions about that? Pretty easy, hopefully. Has anyone done these before? A couple of folks. Yeah. Can you clarify between the mass center of the foot and the mass center of the entire body? Because your reaction is due to the total body, right? The joint reaction force? Well, the FG, you got the contact with the ground? Yeah. That's due to the whole body, not just the weight of the foot? Correct. So yeah, so the ground reaction force is due to the weight of the whole body and at the whole foot, and that's the force that's counteracting the force of the body weight, which is acting through here, which includes the center mass of the foot, but it's also through the whole body. So like I said, we're going to keep things simple and only look at one segment, but Understand that you can apply it to a larger segmental analysis. So here we're looking at basically excluding the head and arms. Um, it's a motion in the, or a free body diagram, an incomplete free body diagram, which you have the force of body weight acting down there. You have air resistance, which we didn't talk about previously. Um, and they broke your ground reaction forces down into X and Y components, which you can do as well. So um, it can get a lot more complicated, but we're going to keep it as simple as possible, looking at one segment at a time. It looks like his tibia just kind of falls off there, maybe some type of bone disease. I don't know what's going on with that. Um, another example, so this individual, we're looking at a free body diagram of, of foot forces during a heel rise. So this is an individual standing on one foot, as shown in the picture, and they're just going to go up on their toes, known as a heel rise. Um, we're going to examine the vertical forces acting on the foot and the ankle while standing on your toes. Um, so what we have here is the internal force is going to be the muscle force. So again, it's going to be your Achilles tendon, um, gastroxylus muscle pulling up there. The external force is going to be the weight of the foot coming down here. Um, your contact force is going to be your ground reaction force, um, which is going to be opposing body weight coming down through the system. And your joint reaction force, which comes to act, to act at the ankle joint. Um, and your joint reaction force is made up of the muscle force, the ligament tension, and the body weight acting due to gravity. So this is an example from your textbook. What's missing from this example? X and Y. So we don't have a coordinate system, correct? Right. Good. So how would I orient a coordinate system here? You line it up with one body segment, right. Um, so I could have an X and Y, so my X and Y here orthogonal to one another, 90 degree angle to one another, um, because my body segment, the joint reaction force is coming down through the shank into my foot, so I have one axis here and 
and one axis there. Makes your life easier moving forward. Um, so this is the same thing that we just looked at. And remember joint reaction force, so this is going to be Newton's third law, equal and opposite forces, or forces and equal and opposite um, reaction to one another. So net forces are transmitted from one segment to another. The joint surf surfaces push it back against the other joint surface. So you have a joint reaction force um, due to body weight and the muscle forces acting there. The internal force is going to be the activation of the muscle. Internal force is also due to passive tension on stretched ligaments and other connective tissues. And the external force is your body weight secondary to gravity. So it's the same example we just looked at. So here we have another free body diagram and we're looking at the entire upper extremity here. This one is a little bit more complicated because we have a load in your hand. So LW stands for load weight, AW stands for arm weight, JRF, joint reaction force, MF, muscle force. You can see this one has a coordinate system, so that's good. And the idea behind this free body diagram would be to determine the muscle force and the joint reaction force for the system. What we're looking at here is we're looking at what could be construed as a multi-segment system, right? Because we got the hand, the wrist, and the upper arm, forearm, and the upper arm. So you've got multiple segments associated with that, but we're going to assume that this whole arm segment is rigid. So it's just acting as one system, and that's just going to be an assumption that we make um, for all the analyses that we do, is that we're just dealing with one segment. So we're looking at this as one segment. Now, this differentiates from the one before because there's going to be two loads, the load of the weight and the load of the arm that we have to deal with. Um, and we'll get to that, how we deal with that later. Um, but we're going to assume that there are, this is a rigid segment with rigid links between each of the components. So as an example, your wrist would be fused and your elbow would be fused. So there's no movement that occurs there independent of movement of the whole segment. Um, the internal force is the shoulder abduction force. So this is the muscle force of shoulder abduction with an insertion angle of 15 degrees. So you can see there it's not in line with our coordinate system. Our coordinate system is lined up with the distal segment of the arm, so the positive X goes in line with the arm, and then your Y is orthogonal to that, or 90 degrees to that superior. Um, and the muscle force is acting at 15 degrees to that X axis, or to the arm. It's the same either way. The external forces, like I said before, there's two of these. So you have the arm weight acting in the center of mass of the entire upper limb because we're looking at it as one segment. So the center of mass for the upper limb is going to be proximal to the midpoint or proximal to the elbow joint because there's more mass located proximally than there is distally in the upper extremity. And the free weight in the hand. Your contact forces, so we don't have a ground reaction force because there's no ground associated with this. Uh, but your contact forces are going to be your glenohumeral joint reaction force which is going to be um, acting at glenohumeral joint. Question? Yes. If it's the shoulder abductor force, why is the direction of MF going that way? Would it not be? Maybe I'm just looking at the picture wrong. So this would be an individual standing here like this. Mm -hmm. and my shoulder abductors are maintaining me in this position. Mm -hmm. And their, their line of action, their force, is coming at 15 degrees relative to the horizontal. I guess I was just thinking the arrow would be going the other way. 
Well, because the muscle has to pull up in order to resist the loads of the arm and the segment going down. Okay. If the muscle force was going this way, then they would be adducting. But you're in a static situation maintaining this position. In order to do that, my muscle force has okay. to be acting to rotate in, a, in this position counterclockwise direction. Mm -hmm. But we'll talk more about muscle forces and torques in just a couple minutes here. Questions about this free body diagram? There's different external forces um, because there's no, or there's different contact forces, excuse me, because there's no joint reaction, or there's a joint reaction force, but there's not a ground reaction force. So when looking at reference frames, what we've been describing, what we've been talking about is a local reference frame. And like I talked about earlier, the local reference frame is arbitrary and you're, you should set it up to make your life easier when you're doing a mathematical problem solving equation to study that free body diagram. In order to do that, we talked about you set one of the axes up in line with one of the segments that you're going to study. Um, so that's going to be your local coordinate system. Local meaning that it's going to be applying to the specific segment or segments that you're going to be looking at. Now a global reference frame is just that. So it's reference frame for the entire body. Um, and the global reference frame will allow us to describe the movement that occurs in different directions such as abduction, adduction, flexion, extension, etc. Um, when you're trying to describe movement. And so if you think about this, so over on the, your guys' left side here, this is my global reference frame. And if you think about what this pictorial representation is supposed to represent, remember it's Usain Bolt running down the runway going really fast, right? Um, and so what we would describe his movement, because he's moving in this direction, he's going to be moving in the positive x direction in the global reference frame. Now it's custom that the global reference frame relative to human motion analysis or human movement studies is set up such as this so that the direction the individual is facing is a positive x, positive y or is toward the left and positive z is superior or toward the ceiling or toward the sky. Um, and that global reference frame is governed by what's known as the right hand rule. Who's heard of right hand rule? Who took physics? Those should all be the same hands, I would hope. Who had physics and didn't have the right hand rule? Okay. You don't have to lie. I won't take it against you, just your physics professor. Okay, so the right hand rule um, allows us to define the global reference frame relative to two axes. So. We're given two axes and we can calculate the third based on the orientation of our right hand. Now it's known as the right hand rule because when you're doing this, you're utilizing your right hand to set it up. It's not like your right hand man. I don't know what that has to do with right handed or left handedness. Um, but a couple of students on their exam last year were doing right hand rule problems on the test. And they said, I knew I got it right and I don't know why I got it wrong. And it's because they were using their left hand because they were writing with their right hand. <laughs> so it's the right hand rule because you use your right hand to, to calculate these uh, global coordinate systems. So the right hand rule allows three dimensional movements to be described with only providing two dimensions in a reference frame. So the rules are as follows. Um, 
The x-axis, you're going to point the fingers of your right hand and align with the x-axis with your fingers pointing in the positive x-direction. So you look where the x-direction is and you align your fingers so that they go in the positive x-direction. After that, you maintain your index finger along the x-axis while carrying your third through fifth digits toward the y-axis using the shortest arc of movement. And this is going to be your positive y-direction. And then from that position, you extend your thumb so it's perpendicular to both your index and third through fifth digits, and that's the positive z-direction. You guys all clear on that, I'm sure, right? Okay. We'll practice a couple. So we'll start over here. This is um, We have defined two axes, and from this, we should be able to determine the third um, the z-axis or the third axis in this positive direction based on the right-hand rule. So the first thing we're going to do is going to point our right um, the fingers of your right hand aligned with the x-axis, the fingers pointing in the positive direction along the arrow. So remember, the arrows go in the positive direction. So my right-hand rule, in order for me to line up my fingers with, um, going in the correct direction, my hand is going to be like that. Is everyone okay? Fingers going in that direction? Good deal. Now the second rule is maintain your index finger along the x-axis while curling your third to fifth digits toward the y-axis using, using the shortest arc of movement. So what does that mean? That means I could, if I was able to dislocate my fingers, swing my fingers up around that way, right? But that's not the shortest arc of movement. Shortest arc of movement is going to be 90 degrees. So as I go to the positive x, I keep my index finger in the positive x, and then I bring these fingers up for a positive y. Right? So I have my positive y, my positive x defined based on my fingers. And the last one is extend your thumb so it's perpendicular um, to both your index and third through fifth digits. And the ray that your thumb is pointing is going to be your positive z direction. So x, y, z. Right hand. So my z axis positively is coming out of the screen towards you guys. Now let's take a look at this one. So I've got to line my fingers up toward the, or my index finger up toward the positive x direction. It should be like this. And then I want to connect with the shortest possible arc of movement, my fingers toward the positive y direction. So that's not going to be like that, right? So it's going to be like that. And then my positive z is going to be as I extend my thumb at a 90 degree angle, and that's going to be positive into the board. Is everyone okay with right hand rules? So when you see a free body diagram, many times you won't see that an individual or that the, the representation has all three axes because it's difficult to draw three axes like I tried to draw the three axes here and that Y could be pointing down or it could be pointing out at us and we're not really quite sure what it is. So if we can define two, then we can calculate the third. Um, examples of when you'll see this, this is from my dissertation and my PhD and I looked at scapular kinematics and you can see we have, um, these are actually local reference frames, so I've defined an X and a Y and a Z for the humerus, for the scapula, and for the thorax and then I talked about how they moved in the global reference frame. Another example of a, a reference coordinate system, so this is looking at vertebral movement and they've defined all three here. 
um, but you can see that there's rotations and translations about three degrees so bringing it back and they do define all three here so you're not actually utilizing the reference rule but it does show and this would be a local or a global coordinate system <coughs> Just looking at this segment here, local, because they're only looking at the specific segment. And actually, according to convention, if their z-axis is pointing positive anterior, that would probably not be a global reference system because we talked about before, uh, sort of generically, that the positive x is going to be anterior to the body as far as the direction of um, the global reference system. So this is going to be local, and the only reason you know that is because it's acting through that specific segment. And it's not according to the convention, which I don't know why they wouldn't just align it, but they didn't. Um, so now you can have defined here, so they define an X, Y, and a Z, but you can look at whole body movement, and they have um, they have forces acting at segments, and at specific segments, and I don't think they have a whole body. It doesn't look like they have a whole body yeah, center. It's, it's halfway down front. It's not drawn very well. This is from my master's thesis way back in 72. Okay, so there you are. Um, so that's the weight of the trunk acting there. So that's going to be your um, body center mass in the specific segments. And then you can see the uh, coordinate system set up there. Um, and then when you guys, so some of you guys have seen this before. This is a motion analysis setup that we'll talk about more specifically as far as the types of motion analysis um, in the next class. But each one of these reflective balls on the specific anatomical segment is assigned a local coordinate system. And how that local coordinate system moves in the global coordinate system is how that portion of the body segment moves in space. Um, and so what's not shown on this diagram here or this diagram here are all the local coordinate systems. But what you do see is the global coordinate system of the whole frame here. So it's a, as we said before, positive X moving anterior, positive Y to the right, positive Z going superior, and then O is going to be your origin point. Any questions about that? Why don't we take a little bit of a break and we'll start back at 5-2 and talk about force analyses. Folks, any questions? Um, I had a, a question which is good and may help to clarify for some of you guys. So if you are looking at the global coordinate system um, as defined by convention, so positive x forward, positive y to the right, positive z superior, and an individual is jogging or moving backwards, then they are moving in the negative x direction. Um, so if you're reading a paper that talks about movement, whether you're talking about sporting events, whether you're talking about... Um, gait analysis or walking an individual with joint replacement or, or whatever you're reading about relates to clinical um, physical therapy, that is going to be the convention um, that should be utilized and they may not mention that in their saying, they say they'll move in the positive x direction but if they don't define it, positive x is them walking forward or running forward or whatever and forward. Um, they may define a different and if they don't define it, that's assumed. If they define a different system, then you have to utilize that to determine which direction they're moving in. So. It can, kind of gets a little bit tricky if they use a different system for whatever reason. I'm not sure why they would, but um, sometimes you do. So we talked about um, looking at force analysis a little bit with vector analysis last class, I believe. Um, and we're going to expand on that 
a little bit here today. Um, and then we're going to sort of take it into muscle forces, then muscles um, that causes compression, distraction, or rotation at joints, and we'll discuss that as we go along. So, as we said, you can add, when it's a vector, it's got a magnitude and a direction, and so you can add or subtract, you can compose um, or decompose forces that are linear to one another. So here, this is the example that I used the other day. Some individuals sitting on the, the plinth, and they have the weight of their shank, so that's the shank weight, and then they have a load, which kind of looks like a poorly designed Roman sandal um, attached to their foot. And because they're sitting there and they are parallel to one another, the force is acting in the same direction due to gravity, we can just add those two vectors together um, and get the reaction force acting at the joint. Now that reaction force of the shank weight and the limb weight is doing what to the knee joint? It's distracting it, right? Um, and actually, if we wanted to be more specific, it would say that it's causing an inferior translation of the tibia on the femur. Does everyone see that? So it's an inferior translation. If it was a true joint distraction, the knee would be fully extended and it would be pulling along the long axis of the leg. But for simplification, uh, distraction is correct. Um, the other example that we used in class last time we talked about some sort of traction unit on this faceless individual and they have a head weight associated with that and a traction force which is, um, is equal to the load associated with that weight and the pulley system that's um, indicated there and if you're looking at the individual vectors so we're just looking at the distances or the lengths of each of these vectors and the head weight vector is shorter than the traction force vector. So therefore, the traction force is the resultant force, meaning that that individual's head weight is essentially zero and there's some force actually pulling that individual's head in a cranial direction or in a superior direction. If you guys are ever doing traction clinically, you probably don't want to use that much force. Um, or if you do, you want to make sure that it's not located through their um, mandible so they're not compressing their TMJ, right? So there's other um, joints that are involved there. So the RTF, um, which isn't indicated anywhere here, is the resultant traction force. Oh, sorry, it is. Oh, it just says RF. Um, RF, so that's the resultant traction force, and it's the algebraic sum of the head weight and the traction force. So all you're doing is looking at the lengths of those two, and you can mathematically, if you wanted to calculate the actual distances, you can determine that your reaction force is going to be going in the direction of the traction force, and that is your resultant force pretty straightforward. Another way to look at this graphically, um, you can do this based on the parallelogram method. And what this is saying is that you essentially add the tip of one vector to the tail of another. Um, and these don't have to be directly parallel to one another. So they don't have to be in the same exact direction or the opposite direction. Um, but they can go in either direction and you can add those two together. So here, if I have two 10-pound forces acting at this point here, I can move this 10-pound force um, to the end of this 10-pound force. My resultant force is going to be that 18-pound force there. So here's my example. I have A and B, and each of these are equal forces acting in similar um, but divergent directions. So they're both acting to the right, but one's going positive. Er, superior and one's going inferior. So if I move my B vector, so this is just me shifting my B vector 
to the end. So I was at tip to tail, tail to tip. So I move the tail of this B vector to the tip of the A vector. So I go tail to tip. Um, my resultant force is going to approximate that line C, which is just what I showed you guys on the left side there. Now this can be added on by having more vectors associated with a specific um, force. So here I have three vectors. I have an A and a B and a C vector. And they're all acting at the same origin or the same point. And I can add A and B together. So I just shift B down to the end of A. So I take the tail of here, put it to the tip of A. And so this is going to be my B vector here. And then I take my C. So I have the resultant of A plus B, which comes to here. I bring my C vector from the far side, add it to the end of A and B, and I get A plus B plus C, and that's the resultant force of those three forces acting on the same point. Is everyone okay with that? Now to expand on that a little bit, so I'm going to give you those are the three vectors that we started with. And here we added A plus B, but I thought, why don't we add A plus C, just as an example here. So here we started with A plus B, and we got to this point here, and then we added C we get to this final point there as your resultant vector here. We're adding A plus C, so I just shifted C to the end of A there. And then from that point, I brought B over, and my resultant force A plus B plus C is not different between this and this. So it doesn't matter the order which you add them together because they're all going to be, um, based on the direction and the magnitude, they're going to give you the same resultant force whether you add them in any specific order. Is that all good? So how does this play into clinic a little bit? Um, so here we have a sample of vector composition, and here we have an individual that just had a hip replacement. So had arthritis or had a fracture of some sort, had a hip replacement, and we want to look at the joint reaction force, or the force associated with that prosthetic. Um, and actually, this is interesting. Dr. Williams and I went to visit an alumni of our program, Dr. Chuck Thigpen, who works down at Pro-Axis Therapy in South Carolina, Spartanburg. He's the head of rehabilitation and research. He's a, I think he's, what's that, a research scientist, I think. Chuck, something like that. Um, but at his clinic, they have a bunch of surgeons that work in the same clinic in this really cool building, and they have a bunch of engineers and a bunch of PTs um, and some occupational therapists and some other folks. And what they do is they look at failed prostheses. And so if someone had a hip replacement, and the actual component, the prosthesis that they put in failed, didn't work for whatever reason. They had to have surgery again to get a new one put in. But the ones that are all failed go to his, or one of the research laboratories associated with his office and his clinic, um, and they, the engineers look at it and try and find out why it failed. Um, so they put through lots of testing and they can see the forces that go through it. And we know that if an individual has a certain amount of body weight, the force that's going to go through that prosthesis has to be greater than that individual's body weight, otherwise it's going to fail. So they can do load testing to see how that prosthesis failed. And they're probably going to choose the prosthetic based on the individual's body weight and size. So if I get a uh, hip replacement at some point in time, hopefully I don't, but if I do in the future, I'm probably going to get a bigger hip replacement um, than someone who's smaller than I am. It's going to have to be able to support a greater load on me than it would be on someone that's smaller than me. Um, so you can use this as an example to calculate the prosthetic hip joint reaction force due to the weight of the body and the hip abduction muscles. 
um, and we can use the vector analysis or vector composition to determine that. So here we have the individual's body weight acting through the center of mass of the entire body, which is just anterior to S2, which is perfectly positioned in this person's pelvis. And then we have the hip abduction force, which is probably occurring in unilateral stance, um, so that this first individual doesn't lean over to the side and fall down. And so what we can do is we can utilize vector composition like we did before, so we add the hip abduction force to the vector of the body weight, and that's gonna give us a resultant vector, which is the um, force acting inferiorly at the joint. And then my joint reaction force is gonna be equal and opposite to that, so it's gonna go in the opposite direction, but be equal in magnitude. So it's equal and opposite, and the resultant force um, is your prosthetic hip reaction force, or it's the joint reaction force um, in response to the body weight and the muscle force associated with that. Everybody good with why it's joint reaction force, not resultant force? Just the opposite direction. So now again we have a pulley system for an individual in traction. Looks like here they've got some sort of tibial fracture they're trying to apply traction to. And we've got multiple forces, the PQS acting in different directions, but we can add those two together. So here's my P force. Um, acting at the end of the bone here, so I'm just approximating the force there. So my P, then I add the Q, and then I add the S, and I get a resultant force, which is in, long, which is in line with the long axis of the bone, because they're trying to separate that bone wherever the fracture site is. Um, so the force will actually be applied through this pulley here, but it's resultant of these forces at P, Q, and S. So again, adding multiple vectors to get a resultant force in the direction which you want. Fixed, 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 movable pulley. Remember those things? Good. And the load. Um, also looking at vector resolution, so we can use the parallelogram method which we've been talking about. Determine the resultant vector by using a parallelogram based on the magnitude and direction of two component forces. So here we have an individual's finger. This is the uh, metacarpal bone. Here's your um, proximal phalanx, your distal phalanx. And this is your MCP joint. And you've got your flexor tendons acting anterior to that MCP joint. Now if I have a contraction of my flexor muscles, um, flexor tendon is going to go through the pulleys at the MCP, the PIP, and the DIP and attach to the various components where they go. So there's flexor uh, profundus and superficialis and they're attached to the MCP joint by collateral ligaments that surround that pulley. When I have a contraction, the muscle force, or the force one here, is going to be directed um, to pull with contraction. So as that muscle shortens, it's gonna pull the tendon this way, uh, but you're also gonna have a distal attachment which is going to pull in the opposite direction. So I can add again, to, or, I was create that, tail to tip. So I look at my force one and I can add it to my force two. So I'm just shifting this vector down here and my resultant force is going to be going as a traction force to the collateral ligament or it's applying a tensile force to that collateral ligament which helps to stabilize the joint. Conversely, I can move my F2 to the end of F1. So I take this vector, apply it to the end of the F1 vector and I get the same resultant force. So again, it doesn't matter which order I apply them to um, as long as you apply them in the appropriate 
magnitude and direction, you get the same reaction force. And that's known as a bowstring force, which applies tension to those collateral ligaments. Um, and if the force becomes too great, my reaction force can cause a tear or a damage to those ligaments. Um, like if I had a large contraction. Also, you can see if I did have an injury due to any large contraction or for whatever reason I had a dislocation of that joint, my reaction force is going to be decreased, or my, yeah, my reaction force and my bowstring force is going to be decreased because the inferior in this picture components or the anterior relative to my hand components are going to decrease um, because the angle of those forces is going to go smaller. Everyone follow that? So now looking at muscle forces, and this is, um, we talked a little bit about earlier, Amy, with the, um, some of the components causing rotation and some of the causing joint compression or distraction. So here I have a pictorial diagram of forearm, and there's a muscle acting in the forearm, and this M is the muscle force associated with that muscle. What muscle might that be? Who's good at forearm? Brachioradialis, good, um, is brachioradialis. So here I set up my local coordinate system, right? And my poorly drawn, actually that's not too bad. So my X axis is designed to represent um, the axis of the forearm. It doesn't do it that great, but it does it a little bit. And my Y axis is again perpendicular to that. So if I, this is my muscle force, is gonna be the direction which the force is occurring. And we can look at breaking that down into two component forces. So you're going to have a Y component, um, which is perpendicular to the long axis of the body segment. So the long axis of the body segment is going to be the forearm. And my Y, or the Y component of my muscle force is going to be perpendicular to that. And I'm going to have an X component, which is directed parallel to the long axis of the body segment, which is MX there, so the muscle force X and that goes along the axis of the body segment to the axis of rotation. Now, both of these are occurring at the same time, and my resultant force is always going to be the muscle force. That's not going to change. But if I look at the components specifically of muscle force in the Y component, what would happen if only I had the Y component? What would happen to that joint? If I had a force acting along this direction with this magnitude, what's going to happen to my forearm? Yeah, it's going to go into elbow flexion. So the Y component of this resultant force is going to cause rotation at the joint. And the um, force associated with that is going to be relative to the moment arm, which we'll talk about, so it's measured there, and the magnitude of the Y component. So because there's a relatively small magnitude, the amount of rotation due to the muscle force alone is going to be small, but it does have a large moment arm, so the torque is going to be high. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Now the X component we said is directed parallel along the axis of the body segment. So let's just ignore the muscle force and then ignore the Y component. We're only looking at this red arrow directed toward the axis of rotation. If I had a force acting along that vector, what would that do to the body segment? 
it would apply compression to the elbow joint or to the humeral ulnar joint. So if the only force here was this red arrow, it would apply compression at that axis of rotation. Does that make sense? So whenever you have a muscle contraction, and we'll talk about usually in the limbs because it's easier to see at joint angle, there's going to be a component which causes rotation, which is the Y component, and there's going to be a component which causes compression, which is going to be the X component in this example. Now it can be that the Y component is zero and all of the force is causing compression. That's possible. It's also possible that your X component is zero and the Y component um, is maximal, so it's causing only rotation and no compression or distraction. And then if we're going to determine torque, we're going to look at the internal moment arm. Again, this is the per perpendicular distance from the muscle force Y um, to the instantaneous axis of rotation. So this is the force, and if I want to determine the torque, I multiply the force times the moment arm. The moment arm is the distance from the axis of rotation to the um, distance where the muscle force is applied distally. That's your internal moment arm. That's what IMA stands for. It's the internal moment arm. So muscle force Y is indicated by that, and its torque is times the moment arm associated with that. Yes? You said the X component causes compression if it's in parallel to the long axis? In this example, the X axis is causing compression, correct? Because remember, so this is my resultant force. If I were to add MY to MX, I'm going to get my resultant force. So instead of going in that direction, I'm breaking it down into the component directions, which is Y causing rotation and X causing compression for this example. It's not any different. Um, then this, except here I'm starting with my components to get my resultant. Here I'm starting with my resultant and I'm getting it down into the components. So just going in the opposite direction based on my local coordinate system. We're going to do more examples. So um, if this is confusing, you have a couple more tries. And we're going to talk about it again next week. So you have plenty of time to see this. And I know it's probably new for some of you guys. And it's not super straightforward. And that's fine. Um, so here we have another example. So an individual doing a knee extension exercise. You got their shank weight, SW. You got a load weight attached to their foot. And you've got a muscle force, which is your quadriceps, excuse me, your quadriceps muscle acting at the tibial tubercle. So muscle force is going in this direction, and relative to my x and y, I can create components of that muscle force. So my muscle force y is going to cause direction. So if only this is my resultant force again, I'm going to break it down into its component forces. My muscle force y, because of my y, my local coordinate system, positive y, is going in this direction. My muscle force x. Is going, it should be going through the axis rotation, um, but my picture's not that great. Um, it's going along the long axis of the tibia, and it's causing joint compression. So if I added my Y to my X, I would get my resultant force, which is my muscle force. This component causes what to happen at the knee? 
rotation into which direction? Into extension, good. And my muscle force X causes what at the knee? Compression, good deal. So everyone good? What causes rotation, what causes compression, okay. So, now let's talk about the load weight. We've been talking about the muscle force. Now the load weight is again going to be due to the force of gravity on the load, whether it's the segment here or the load here, and that can have component parts as well. So there's one part that's going to cause rotation in which direction? In the Y, is that a positive Y or a negative Y? In the negative Y direction. So what movement would that cause at the knee? Flexion. So this load is trying to flex my knee, right? And that is occurring in the negative Y. So this is positive Y. It's occurring in the negative Y direction. So this force has a component, a Y component. Let's see if I can write on here. And again, this is going to be crappy. So that is going to be my load weight Y. So that's causing that knee to go into flexion. It's going in a negative Y direction. And then I have the load weight X. No, not order. That's okay. And which direction is that going to be going? Relative to my local coordinate system. It's going to be going toward the positive X, right? So just like the muscle force was the resultant force, this load weight is the resultant force. So I need to have my component forces approximate my resultant force. So my load weight X is going to move just like that. And that red line there will be load weight X. Is everyone okay with that? What about my segment weight? So my segment weight is going to be the weight of the shank, or the shank weight, either way. Whatever S stands for, I'm just going to keep changing it up, see what happens. I have a... Actually, let me stop there for a second. My load weight Y is going to, as you guys said, it's going to be in the positive, or the negative Y direction. It's going to cause knee flexion. What is going to occur with my load weight X? What's that doing to the system? Yeah. Separating the joint surfaces. So that's going to be a distractive force along the long axis of the tibia, which would be in the positive X direction. So my X here, as I have muscle contraction, some of it causes rotation, some of it causes compression. As I have my load weight here, some of that causes rotation in the opposite direction, and some of that causes dis distraction, which is going to be opposite to the load weight or the compression from the muscle force. Excuse me. Okay, shank weight or segment weight, whatever SW stands for, I'm going to have a Y component. Which direction is that going? Negative Y. So that's an S weight. And then I'm going to have an X component. Which direction is that going? Positive X. So again, my resultant force, and I get the two components, the X and Y component, and what is similar about the segment weight and the load weight from an X and Y standpoint? They're in the same direction. So both of those are causing flexion to occur at the knee, and both of those occur, are causing distraction to occur at the knee joint. Yes? Can you explain how 
SW, sure. So, we talk, do you understand how I can add these together to get the resultant force? So I'm doing the same thing, so this is my resultant force, so SW is, that's the resultant force, is that black line. And in order for me to approximate that black line, my components have to go this way. So if I had um, SWY, for example, and it came here, there's no way that I was going to approximate that with a similar load coming from the distractive force. So these two components are going to make up this resultant force or the total force. Is that helpful? Yes? When you're deciding your x coordinate and the direction, mm -hmm. As far as my local coordinate system? Oh no, this is arbitrary. So my coordinate system could be changed. I could switch X and Y, and I could switch the direction of the arrow. So I could have my positive Y coming down here, my positive X coming here. It wouldn't make any difference except for the convention at the specific components. So instead of this being a positive Y, this would be a negative Y, and this would be a positive Y. It's still going to be equal because it's a static situation. It's just a directional preference that's assigned based on its, whether it's positive or negative based on my local coordinate system. Yeah. So that's why I said that local coordinate system is just arbitrary. But if you align it with the segment that you're looking at, it's going to make your life a whole lot easier. Whereas if I didn't, if I had an X and Y like that, then I'd have to start calculating the joint angles and doing... Um, right-hand triangle rule and all those type of math situations that make your life a lot more difficult as opposed to make your life a lot more easy. Okay. We're going to see more. Okay. Okay, so we're going to start with just this one here, so ignore the rest of them for now. And we're looking at the forearm and a resultant force is going to be M here, that's going to be your muscle force. Here's my local coordinate system, positive X going down the um, shaft of the forearm, positive Y at 90 degree angle to that. And my moment arm is going to be the distance from the joint center, axis of rotation, the perpendicular distance to the line of the muscle force. So my internal moment arm is going to be that distance there, which isn't represented that well. Um, and I'm going to have a Y component and an X component that when I add those together, my Y component comes here and I get my resultant force, or my X component comes here, I get the same resultant force. Y causes what to occur? Rotation, and at this, for this segment, what does that mean is happening? Elbow flexion, correct. And my X component here causes what to occur? Compression at the elbow joint. All right, everyone good with top left? Okay, we're going over to the top right section now. So you can see I've changed my local coordinate system to approximate the form again, making my life easier. So my local coordinate system has changed positive x to the right positive y superior. And here, my muscle force is acting along the line of the muscle, which is superior. And that is in parallel with my y-axis. So all of the muscle force is equal to the y component of the force, which means that what happens to my x component? Zero. There is none. It's equal to zero. Because my y component is in the same direction 
as my resultant force. And my moment arm is the distance from the axis rotation to the um, line of the muscle force. Does that make sense to everyone? So there is no X component. There's no distraction or compression that's occurring in this example because all of the force of the muscle is helping to cause rotation, which is again going to be flexion of the elbow. Down to the bottom here. So I've got a different joint angle now. So you can see all I'm doing here, it's the same muscle that I'm looking at. It's just I'm changing the joint angle associated with that. So here I'm in a relatively extended position. Here I'm in 90 degrees of flexion. Here I'm at whatever, 135 degrees of elbow flexion. Again, my X and Y coordinate system set up with the long axis of my forearm. So my X is along the long axis of my forearm. My muscle force or my resultant force, the direction does not change. So that's going to be pointing straight superior um, or upward again. And I'm going to have an X component and a Y component to that. Now I can add these to one another. It doesn't matter which I look at. So if I bring my X over to the end of my Y, I get my resultant force. I bring my Y over to the end of the X, I get my resultant force. And the Y component here is going to be causing what? To occur at the joint. Rotation. Elbow flexion. My X component is going to be causing what to occur at the joint? Distraction, right? So it's different than this situation and this situation in that here we're having compression occur, here we're having no compression or distraction, and here the muscle force is distracting or it's separating those two joint surfaces. And in the final example, the same thing occurs. So I go to end range elbow flexion, 150 degrees or whatever. Um, I have an X component causing lots of what? Distraction. And I have a Y component, which is smaller, causing rotation into elbow flexion. Is everyone okay with looking at taking the resultant force or the muscle force and breaking it down into X and Y components, understanding which of those cause rotation, which of those cause compression or distraction, or none of the above, and setting up your local coordinate system? It's none of the above because your Y force is parallel to the muscle force, yes. So you don't have compression or distraction. Yes? You'll be looking at the forces, the joint reaction forces, the forces acting at the joint center, and the ability of that joint to cause rotation. So as I vary the length of my Y component, I can get more or less force toward rotation. And if I look at the moment arm here or here, then I can look at the torque associated with that because I can combine, multiply those together. So I can look at the ability to produce torque at different joint angles based on the muscle force being the same. Because all these muscle forces are the same, but your ability to produce force changes based on your joint angle. And then your ability to produce torque, you have to multiply times the moment arm, but that also changes. Yes? If you're doing the, back to the parallelogram method stuff. Yes. If you're, like, if you have values for those, do you just, like, take the values and divide it into, like, smaller triangles or squares or something to find the actual result? In here, so, well, this is, we'll just say this is 10 inches and this is 10 inches. Mm -hmm. You're going to shift it over just like we did here, and then you would remeasure your resultant. So you could do math looking at, um, looking at triangles and determine the actual math. Or you can just take a tape measure, for example, and measure that distance. Okay. 
So it's just, this allows you to do it easier with just a simple measurement as opposed to doing all the math behind it. Any other questions? Next week we're going to go into actually doing some calculations using those equations, the sum of um, forces and the sum of torques. Um, and this week in lab we're going to go over a bunch of different things related to convex and concave rule, torques and moment arms, um, forces, and those types of things. So this will be reinforced in lab today and then it will be expanded upon mathematically next week in class and in lab next week as well. Thanks, guys.